1: Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff. My co-hosts are Max Linsky, Aaron Lammer. Howdy, guys. Hey. Hey, you guys. Hey, you guys. From from our respective compounds. Aaron, uh, how you doing? One to ten this week? Five. Wow, all right. Solid five. Upgrade from last week's 4.5. Yep. Uh, that's good news, man. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, glad to hear it. Evan, who is uh, on the show this week? Uh, this week I talked to Bonnie Tsui, who is uh, an old friend of mine. She is a longtime freelancer, travel writer. She has had adventures and written about them all over the world. Uh, she wrote a previous book about Chinatowns around the world. She has a new book out now, which is called Why We Swim, It's a really beautiful book. It's a great book to get lost in at this particular time. And speaking of this particular time, this was actually recorded uh, in the before times, way back in mid-December, so pre-coronavirus. So don't be surprised that you don't find any reference to our current state of affairs in this podcast. So like 15 years ago? (laughs) We don't know how long it's been that we've been uh, sitting here. I feel like we should also just uh, mention for people, you have a terrible cough in this episode. And that might be unnerving to hear. But uh, Evan's fine, you guys. Evan's totally fine. Also not relevant to coronavirus, my my December mid-December cough. If, uh, if you're looking to uh, leave uh, postcards in time like Evan's December cough, do it with an email newsletter from the good people at MailChimp. Their generosity helps make this show possible. Pay it back to them. You probably are going to have an email newsletter anyway, so why not make it a MailChimp newsletter? Now, here's Evan with Bonnie Toy. Hello, Bonnie. Hi, Evan. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast.
2: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be
1: here. How long have we known each other? Two decades almost? I, I think that's say. about right. Yeah. I feel like we were talking not that long ago how we met, and it was originally possibly through Ultimate Frisbee.
2: I think it was like a two-prong thing. One was ultimate frisbee and the other was my friends from junior high school.
1: Oh, right, 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 right. Well, now I've just finished reading your latest book and it's uh it's made me feel like a lazy a lazy person. Was that your intention?
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Just to... go play frisbee. <laughs> ultimate.
1: I'm an older person now. I can't be reading something that really extols the benefits of this type of exercise. But anyway, I want to start with the book because since I've known you, you have covered an incredibly wide range of topics all over the world. A lot of times it involves you also participating in those things, whether it's surfing or swimming. And I feel like those, a lot of people aspire to integrate those things into their lives. And you seem to both integrate them into your life and also have made a career out of writing about them.
2: The deception is complete. Yeah, Thank so <laughs> that's kind of what I want to get
1: into a little bit, is that there's some of that in this book. The book's called Why We Swim. And let's talk a little bit about what the book's about. Sure. Because I'm always daunted by, if I, in my own writing, tackling a topic like this and trying to figure out all the ins and outs of how to do it. So yeah. why don't you explain first how, how this book came about?
2: Sure. It took a long time. I thought about this book for much longer than it took to actually write it. So my last book was, I think, ten years ago now, American Chinatown. Mm-hmm. And you know by now that when you finish a book, the first thing that people ask you is, "What's your next book going to be about?" Oh yeah, and you already got, you
1: got your next one going. Yeah, and no. you just
2: yeah no, so so don't talk to me about that. <laughs> and it took me a long time. I mean, I knew that if there was another book in me, it probably would be something to do with swimming, just because of the various roles swimming has played in my life, and we'll get to that in this conversation, but it took me a long time to figure out the framework to investigate swimming, right? It's a huge topic.
1: Yeah. It couldn't be bigger. You could go (laughs) anywhere in the world. I mean, that's part of what I gathered from reading the book is just these cultures of swimming are so fascinating. And I wondered how many there were that were on the cutting room floor.
2: So many, so many. And so I spent a lot of years you know, having it on the back burner, just jotting down notes or fun anecdotes or things that I'd hear. And I finally got to the point where I thought, okay, well, I really do want to write this book. And so I'm just going to try to write a bunch of stuff and see how that hangs together as a structure. And it just really was like this hodgepodge of like interesting stuff, but it didn't hold together the way that I wanted because uh, there were all these great stories out there. There was my own personal relationship with swimming and water and my family and all these things and the arc of my life and my career. And how did all of the, these things go together? I mm-hmm. mean, it just was, it didn't, it wasn't an answer that came to me very quickly.
1: And you were just doing that on your own. Yeah. I
2: just was, you know, I would write stories every once in a while to kind of test out a theory or, or a little slice of the, some of the things that end up in the book actually came from you know, started out as stories that I'd written for, you know, The Times or other publications. And it's so nice that, you know, that I got to do that, that I could test things out. Because I'm not a book writer. I've written a few books, but it's not what my daily life as a writer looks like. And then someone said to me, um, a really smart editor, finally said, why don't you just call it something as simple as Why We Swim? And I feel like that was this, I don't think it's too much to say that it was like a religious experience where (laughs) it just went, oh, you know, and I heard angels singing. And then everything that I had just kind of immediately fell into these five different baskets. Hmm. Um, So Why We Swim, the title of the book, it's Clear And then everything that I had, all this material that I had, just kind of fell into these five different ways of answering that question. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is so amazing. Like, just starting with survival and then going through to, like, well-being and health and community competition flow. And I land on flow as a concept, but also just the way our bodies and our minds respond to water as humans. And this book that you have in your hand and you've read – that feels like the right book to me. And that, to me, is so satisfying.
1: And so, at the point at which the concept came into focus, how much did you have left in terms of rounding that out? So you saw the five, and then did you have to say, okay, now I need to go report? Yes.
2: Once I saw the five thematic sections, then I could pull the best of what I had found and what I was really curious about going to investigate myself. And I knew, like, for example, in the first section, I knew I wanted to track down this Icelandic
1: fisherman. Yes, I wanted to talk to you about this he, man. He,
2: I I knew he had to be in there.
1: And Explain what happened to this man.
2: So what happened to this fisherman? Um, this is a story that my husband, Matt, told me years ago now. Um, he works with fisheries in the environment and, and does a lot of environmental work. And I guess he'd heard the story, and the book opens in this way, um, about this Icelandic fisherman who was out fishing on a boat Um, In 1984, it was the dead of winter, him and I think six crew, and the boat capsizes and it's 41 degree water. Usually people, you know, maybe 20 minutes can stand this water temperature, then they die of hypothermia or they drown, you know, because they just can't control their bodies and they can't control their breathing. And it's just, that's basically what happened to everyone else on the boat except him. And then he swims... Six kilometers over six hours back to shore, gets out and actually hits land, can't actually get out there because it's like lava. It's on this island called Heime, which is off of the coast of the main Icelandic island. You can't walk on it. You can't get out. The cliffs are 100 feet high. He has to get back in and swim another mile or so and then get out. And he finally makes it climbing over... Lava, rocks, bloody feet, footprints in the snow to a house in town.
1: I mean, it sounds like a short story. Yeah. And am I correct in remembering that John McPhee wrote about it? John
2: McPhee wrote about um, the explosion of the volcano on the island. Oh, right, right. Okay, okay, yeah. And how the Icelanders fought the lava flow with seawater. (laughs) So they tried to freeze the lava... With seawater um, from closing off the harbor, which this island depended on, this fishing harbor. And John McPhee makes note of this Icelandic fisherman. His name is Goodlucker Fridthorsen, <laughs> or Loye is his nickname. Wow. I've learned a lot of You've really uh, how got to the accent, thank, down you, thank you. And he appeared in the New Yorker, I guess it was, I can't remember what year, 1992, maybe. Just a glimpse of this, the myth of the sky, mm-hmm. basically. And he became so famous in Iceland and worldwide, and people did these medical studies and experiments on how this happened.
1: And he he got so much attention that it seemed like he stopped doing press. Yeah. But then why did he talk to you?
2: I wrote to him for a year. We were pen pals for a year. And I never in that entire period of time was I confident that he was going to meet me in person. And I never, until I actually met him a year later, I was not certain he was going to meet me because he had been burned by journalists in the past. And of course, one of the questions I had to ask him when we finally met was, "Why did you say yes?" And he thought about it, and he said, um, "You know, this th- and and mind you, the setting of me asking this question is at this restaurant in this little town that he lives in." And he's very striking. He's, like, 6'4", with this, like, big silvery white beard. And he's like, you know, I I can't really hide. And um, so people know him. People will come up to him and ask how he's been. And, um, you know, this is kind of lessened over the years. But this big movie came out in Iceland by this Icelandic director named Baltasar Kormakor, I think his name is, a few years back. And it's called The Deep And it kind of reopened all of these wounds for him because it was about his ordeal without his knowledge, without his consent, sorry.
1: Oh, he did not want the movie.
2: He didn't want the movie. And I wanted him to talk to me, obviously. I was like, what was he thinking during this whole time? And what is it like to be the one who survives? And, you know, he survived for various reasons that are all in the book. (laughs) So read the book. But, um, you know, he survived not in small part because he was a good swimmer and in, in Iceland, you know, swimming and drownings. It's part of the national identity to swim and also this small town that he's from, this fishing town, has absorbed, you know, more than a share of fishermen going down in, in vessels or just drowning offshore. And so it's part of the mythology of this island and also of the country and he and he told me about these Icelandic sagas and myths of these various characters that have like swum various distances. And of course, when he's telling me like, that's you.
1: Yeah, it's him. That's it's, you. They have like a race in his honor.
2: Yeah, right. They have a swimming race in his honor every year. It's the same distance that he swam to shore to survive.
1: And w- what did he what did he say about why he talked to you?
2: Um, he said that it was because I was patient. I mean, it was a year. So he had a lot of time to kind of get a sense of what I was like, I guess, on paper and then over email, that we would send each other messages. And sometimes he would send me photos and I would send him photos, you know, like various travels I'd been that had to kind of seem relevant to our conversation. And he's a history buff. He's a special guy. And one of the crazy things, I'd never dreamed this would happen, but now our families are friends. We went to Iceland my husband and I took our two little boys to Iceland this last summer and we went to visit him. Oh wow. You know, he's like this uncle now, <laughs> you know, to my family. And I you know, that and that is something that I never could have imagined. But I will say that in my writing life there've been a few characters and a few subjects who I have developed real friendships with that are so rich because Because not only the time we spent together, but we established this real connection. And then there's, I don't know, I just really welcome that. I think it's a really special thing.
1: And do you think a part of that is that you do sometimes participate in what they're doing? I mean, for example, you swam in the race in his honor. Do you think that you being a swimmer was a part of him talking to you or a part of that relationship?
2: I mean, me participating in the race, I think he was moved by that but i don't know that that was uh, when i asked him why he ended up speaking with me he said he always knew he was going to speak to me and it was i think it was because of our correspondence so i think yes in that it showed an investment in him and that I, he mattered to me as a person and not just as this you know imaginary character with a sensational story
1: and i wondered that too about the world-famous record-setting woman from San Francisco. Oh, yeah,
2: Kim Chambers. Kim
1: Chambers, who I was always fascinated by that Dolphin Club,
2: Mm -hmm. the
1: people who swim in San Francisco Bay. But when you said, I want to profile her as part of this book, did you automatically think, I'm going to go swim with her, that's the way to do it? Or does that sort of thing evolve naturally for you where she suggests it and then you do it?
2: She suggested it, but in my mind... Of course. I mean, it makes for a better story if you are experiencing, I mean, not always, right? So I'm sure we can all think of various stunt journalism type things that just feel like you're doing it just for the story. In this case of this book, because I am a swimmer and because I understand the the draw, it's not like I really love swimming in cold water, but I've done it before. And I feels there's something that I have to, I want to be able to describe it. From the inside. And I think that's really valuable. What it feels like, what it tastes like, what it smells like, you know, can you hear, under, like, what do you hear underwater? Or is everything just like a whoosh, you know, like when you're swimming from Alcatraz? I mean, I, I feel that that's sensorially, I want to experience that, that as a human being. And I think as a journalist, maybe my willingness to do some of these things is... Uh, generally positive? I
1: don't know. Maybe <laughs> just
2: foolish now that I have children.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's a part of it. Have you run up against things that you'd said, no, I'm not going to do that? I am not. I will not participate in that?
2: Yeah, there was one like shark experience. I just remember this. It was a story that I was going to do for the Times. It was in Hawaii and it was a swim to an island. And it was like a bunch of people who like often swam. And my friend who lives there I'd said, you should do the swim just because it's like an interesting subculture of this, you know, always swimming to this island and they go and they like hang out and they picnic and they cut swim back. And I, and I was had the assignment, was going to go do it. And then someone got their leg bit off by a shark. And I am generally not afraid of that. I mean, I surf at Ocean Beach, you know, I surf... Bolinas in Northern California, there are sharks there.
1: Yeah. For people who don't know, those are both (laughs) Ocean Beach, as a non-surfer, I know to be a place that's very difficult to surf. Yes. (laughs) And dangerous. (laughs) And Bolinas, I know to be a place with a lot of sharks. Those are the two things
0: that I know.
2: And and we know that there are sharks out there. And I, it doesn't, I think I'm generally fairly reasonable with risk. And that doesn't bother me. But... In this particular case, and this was fairly recent, it was the last couple of years, just how close in proximity it was to when I was going to go. Again, knowing that probably it wasn't going to happen again anytime soon. Maybe it would. Who knows? Well,
1: but it just... Odds don't really change if it's just happened. It right, seems like it, right. they do.
2: Yeah, yeah you're, right, you're right, you're right, you're right. I said I was reasonable. I didn't say I was logical. <laughs> um. Anyway, yes. So that's one recent... I made a conscious decision to not do it.
1: And was that meant to be part of the book if you did do it? Or was it was it No,
2: else? it was just something that I wanted to do. Because mm-hmm. I, I like to do these things, generally speaking.
1: Do you find that you end up sort of picking up, like, do you think you'll continue to swim in the bay? Like, do you find you, you're, like, accruing uh, activities for yourself by writing about them sometimes? Or are they things that you do in a more one-off basis
2: um swimming in the bay is something that i kind of do all the time because i surf it's not the same but in terms of like cold water exposure i think i have enough cold water exposure by going out to surf at ocean beach in the winter but other things i really do like i do love to do certain things that i have picked up over the years and i think that if i looked over all of the stories that i've done i would say that the things that i tried I mean, there's probably a fair m- number that have stuck with me. I mean, like surfing was something that I, I only picked that up maybe 10, like over the last 10 years.
1: And how did that start?
2: Um, I would go on assignment for <laughs> stories to warm places. and I thought, I, I think I would like to surf. And I would go surf. And then finally, you know, I had a critical mass of people to surf with in San Francisco. Or that, sorry, it was a critical mass of people who would say, let's go. Thursday at you know 7:30 and I would say okay and you need those people to hold you accountable to meet up to go do things that are somewhat unpleasant like going in cold water
1: that's that's the part that I can't <laughs> I just as a person who wants to be that person like I want to be the person who gets up you know, before the kids get up and go out and go cold water surfing and then just come in feeling like I could conquer the world. But I'm I'm not. It's never proven to be true. <laughs> so I'm fascinated with what enforces that discipline on you that you do it.
2: Well, what do you get up early in the morning for? What would get you out of bed early in the morning?
1: My kids got to go to school. That's the main thing that gets me out of bed in the morning.
2: Responsibility gets you out of bed. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think, well, I've always been... um I think as a child, I was kind of a sloth. I really, like, I loved reading. I wouldn't say that I was a particularly active kid. I swam. But it was mostly because my parents said, you have to do a sport. Mm -hmm. And it started out being my brother and I played soccer. And I freaking hated soccer. I just Mm. hated kids kicking me in my shins all the time. And then they said, well, you can swim or soccer. And then we just unanimously went for swimming. And that was just luck I, if I were presented with other sports, I probably, I feel like maybe I would not be the person I am now. I mean, I lo- I feel such, I feel happy in the water. I, I, and I think that if my parents had not put us in water, I wouldn't be who I am.
1: Well, you have this description. So you were born in Flushing mm-hmm. or were in Flushing when you were small and then you're on Long Island. Mm-hmm. And you have a description in the book of being a kid in the pool mm-hmm. and this particular pool Feeling like a refuge from, yeah, in yeah. what, in what, we're describing what way.
2: Well, so my family came here from Hong Kong, um, immigrated here from Hong Kong, and my brother and I are the first generation of our family to be born in America. And when we grew up primarily in Long Island, it was very white, and we were, I mean, the only in my schools growing up one of a handful, two of a handful of kids of color. And, I mean, the first day of school was, like, horrific (coughs) for me. It was, like, the teacher trying to pronounce my name, and then the kids would... It was regular. It was just, like, Bonnie soy sauce, Bonnie tissue, Bonnie hot chewy. (laughs) You know, just, like, all these things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you take it in stride, but a little part of you dies inside. And then (laughs) where I found refuge from that was the swimming pool because the next town over had a pool and a complex where there was a swim team and so we joined this club team and um in this town it was much more diverse there were lots of people of color we were in the pool with brown black white yellow bodies you know just like all and no one no one said things to me that they said to me in school Mm. nobody and i cannot remember a time in which i felt like i didn't belong there because of my race or what i look like and part of that too is like just being really feeling healthy and at home in my body and you know it's it was a co-ed team so there was like it was really exciting to be in the pool with you know other kids especially when you hit puberty (laughs) And there's all kinds of, you know, on-deck romances and stuff like that. (laughs) But it was just like a place of experimentation, actually. And I talk about a little bit about this in the book. It really was the stage for so much of my, like, how I became who I am.
1: And do you think it it enforced a certain discipline on your life that carried over into other, I'm thinking specifically about, you know, you're a freelance writer and like that requires a certain yeah, sure. level of that as well.
2: I mean, I think I am a self-motivated person anyway. Um, I really don't like being told what to do. <laughs> I think I um, I've thought about this many times over the last, let's see, 16 years that I've been a full-time freelancer. And I've only worked in an office like three years of my life. And I pretty much hated every minute of it. Even though I thought my dream was to always and forever be living in New York, working in publishing, working at a magazine, being an editor, writing, you know. And when I was an editor, I kind of hated it. I just didn't like being chained to a desk. I worked at Travel and Leisure Magazine as an editor for some time, and I thought, this is great. This is this is it. I've, I've done it. I'm going to be here forever. At 24, I'm going to be here. And... And I kept telling myself I liked it, but really what I ended up doing was dreaming up these stories for to send other writers on, and I, that really galled me. <laughs> and maybe that's uh, exactly, I mean, I think you, you described me as someone who likes to do things in the journalism that I participate, like to participate in it. I do. I mean, I think that's right. I think that it was upsetting to me as a novice to be... Coming up with story ideas that then I didn't execute on. I mean, that's a real, I think that's a real thing. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I I can very closely relate to that. But I also feel like I'm conflicted because ultimately I experienced that same thing, but it feels sort of selfish to me. Like we need the people, <laughs> the, t- the utterly selfless people who will edit the stories and sit in the office and say, I will send people to do things that sound very fascinating to me rather than sending myself. Yes, yes. But you and I have at various (laughs) points chosen to be on the other end, the receiving end of that whenever possible. Right, right.
2: And I think that also uh, when you have that great relationship with an editor who really gets you and doesn't want to be that person who goes out but wants you, like actually it's it's a selfless act. Because they kind of launch you into the world to do the writing that they see you capable of doing and are the right person for. And so I hold those relationships very dearly when I have, like, I've worked with editors at The Times for, I've worked for them for 20 years. And it's, it's crazy to think that I have known some of these editors for that long. And it's wonderful. I,
1: I just, like, I feel really grateful every day. How do you maintain those relationships?
2: Um, It's funny because I just came to you from visiting some editors at the Times offices. And one of them, I think I've met one time previously. Hmm. It was just nuts to think that we had been working together for so long and had not actually been face to face more than these two times. But, you know, I just I try to, like, remind people that I exist, (laughs) which I guess. I don't know. What what does that mean these days? You send them an email. <laughs> you tweet at them. Uh, right, well, so actually, I didn't think that moving to California was going to help my career. But I think moving away from New York was absolutely the right move for me. But I didn't see it that way at the time. Mm. And I've been in the Bay Area for 16 years now.
1: Yeah, that's why I, I always have doubted the... Even as a person who ended up here, I've doubted the right, the value back. of proximity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I also feel like there's just too many people here trying to do the same thing. Yeah. And so any advantage you can get from being somewhere else with access to a different mindset. Yeah. I mean, of course, having face-to-face contact with people occasionally is helpful but it's not like you hang out with the editors all the time you don't want to see
2: them every day right they they (laughs) They don't want to see you
1: (laughs) all of us are just at home that's i'm just at home all the time but (laughs) so you said like the dream was to be a writer and editor in new york Mm -hmm. at a certain point in your life where did that dream originate for you Where, where does it come from the desire to want to do this type of work for you
2: i grew up in a very creative household so my father is an artist and when i was the year I was born, he won an Emmy. He was doing graphics for um, for all you New Yorkers live at five. <laughs> and he, it was when they still used artists and illustrators for those graphics that they did. And my childhood was in his studio. Like it was downstairs studio of our house was, you know, where he made, he did movie posters. He did. Choose your own adventure book covers. He did romance covers.
1: He did Louis L'Amour.
2: He did Louis L'Amour. I was,
1: I, that really stuck out when I was reading, because you wrote this essay for Catapult about your relationship with your father. And that really stuck out because my father has read every Louis L'Amour book. No every one that he ever wrote. Then there's an insane there number of There are so them. many. So and many. then I saw either in that story or somewhere else, you had a, I saw a photo of the cover. And I recognize that cover. I've seen that cover nope. in my house that your dad <laughs> right. illustrated. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So that was the background, the wallpaper of my childhood was all of his paintings. He was the cool parent, you know, like my parents eventually divorced, but my, when we were kids, he was the cool parent. I mean, he, he would stay out late and watch movies. And if we woke up in the middle of the night and we, you know, we would sneak downstairs and, like, hang out with him for a little while. Um, he took us to wildly inappropriate movies when we were children. I mean, <laughs> I remember sitting in, like, Star Trek, Wrath of Khan, when the, the thing crawls into... The ear thing. Yeah, oh, God, mm-hmm. I just... Or Alien, you know, <laughs> watching these movies. Wildly inappropriate, but I love movies. And just, he's a free spirit. I mean, he's a guy who I think we immerse ourselves in his creativity growing up. And so I said to him when I was a kid, I want to grow up to be an artist like you. I'm going to be a freelance artist. And he just laughed at me and he said, you know, very unstable career financially. I mean, we would have boom and bust years, you know, mm. like he would have done like 100 million Louis the more covers when, you know, we get a back deck and a trip to Disney World. <laughs> and then, you know, bust years, it's, you know, ramen. <laughs> But we were fairly insulated from it, I think. We saw as kids just this fun guy. And I think writing went hand in hand with the art. So we would be painting and I would just be writing stories on my own and just living in books. You know, that was my life.
1: And then you write about, this. I say, that your father sort of then just disappeared from your life. Yeah. And did that change your view of who you want it to be or what, like that sort of creativity and yeah. the, did the free spiritness of it suddenly seem like something dark?
2: Yeah, but it took a long time to process that. And I think, I mean, that essay that I wrote for Catapult about my relationship with my father and the my relationship to art and creativity and the creative life. I mean, that essay was something that I think I was waiting my whole life to write. And even in writing that piece realized so many things about how I thought about art and how I thought about my father. And it was definitely a case of like writing to process something, you know, even now as a fully grown up person, like just that, it, you know, we we don't allow ourselves to think that deeply about things that hurt. And so when my parents got divorced, actually separated when I was younger and then finally divorced, it was just this, it was a creative Absence, like a creative hole. Like my my mom is a beloved person in my life. She is very different from my dad. She's very responsible, very practical. She's the one who's like, you need your own bank account <laughs> from your husband, and you know, from <laughs> from when I was like eight years old, like probably from her own experience. You know, I it just it's just mm-hmm. like the stuff that um, she was not the fun one, and then suddenly she was left holding the bag, like when he started kind of traveling back and forth like for work and eventually like kind of living apart from her in New York and he was in Hong Kong and then in China and so they eventually divorced and it took me a long time to kind of process that and what that meant because when you have someone who's like such a huge force in your childhood life and then when he kind of disappeared in my junior high years and then high school years... I had to kind of figure out my own way forward with that. and Mm -hmm. So I think I kind of resisted the art and kind of turned a little bit towards writing at that point.
1: And did you know for a long time what type of writing you wanted to do?
2: No. Um, I actually remember realizing in college that nonfiction, like I took a class on the nonfiction essay, and I thought, oh, this can be art. Like this can be as creative and fun and imaginative as fiction and that was a turning point for me. That I could look at things that happened in real life as just the jumping-off point for writing and animating worlds. I mm-hmm. thought that was really special.
1: What's interesting about that essay that you wrote about your father and you and I had talked about. You don't usually write mm-hmm. that type of get that personal. Like you're mm-hmm. often in the stories, right. but they're not sort of personal essays in that sense. Right. And I feel like you and I are old enough that we kind of came up like before the sort of online personal essay boom mm-hmm. which is I mean I think it's been discussed more in reference to women than to men but you know where you, right. there was this like requirement almost or, or at least like a huge demand for revealing a huge amount about yourself mm-hmm. in these essays and I don't know where I'm going in terms of question but it just seems interesting to me that you have written yourself into stories in different ways mm-hmm. but never kind of gone down that road and I wonder if you chose at a certain point. I'm not here to reveal a lot about myself.
2: Um I think it's I have two reasons for that. One is I don't think I'm that interesting. <laughs> As I mean in terms of like I don't have a dramatic I've not led a really crazy like childhood. I mean like things have not happened to me in a like a sort of movie plot way that I think other people have these life stories that are just, they have a narrative drama in and of themselves. And for me, you know, maybe the best way to talk about this is to talk about how I wrote this book. Like, mm-hmm. I'm in it. Yeah. I'm the frame for it. I mean, I have a personal relationship with swimming.
1: You're in every s- section. Like yeah. You're in all five sections in some way.
2: Right. But I did not want to write a book about me and swimming I found so many of these other stories about other people in swimming to be; those are the people I wanted to write about. But I also understand that as a narrator, I could be valuable. And I think figuring out the balance of that—you know, my voice in it, my presence in it—as a journalist, as someone who's reporting what's happening, and bringing you in, you as the reader, close enough to feel that you're. You are participating in some way with me without it being about me. I don't want it to be about me. It's
1: not a memoir. My life in swimming.
2: Right. It's not that. So this book was an interesting example of trying to figure out how much of myself to put in. And I realized that myself as a frame for it, Mm -hmm. as as the narrator inviting you in with me, that felt right to me. But it took, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out that balance. It's hard. It was hard. Mm But I think I did it because it feels right to me when I look back at it. Um, And that essay that you referenced about that I wrote my father, like that is not the kind of writing that I often do. Again, because it's not that I I, I don't think that I have that many stories that that form, that sort of memoir, intimate, raw, lends itself to. Mm. But in that case, I think writing in that exposed way was the right way. To write about that particular story this is the one example
1: Every, you know I will say not not everyone's so discerning about their own <laughs> lives uh, but but so you you've been a full-time freelancer you said for 16 years. Yeah. what's your overall strategy for how you have navigated that? like did you have a strategy? I'm a freelancer. here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put piece together this and that. this is my regular gig these are my side gigs like or is it just kind of like year by year project by project figure it out?
2: Uh, I'm trying to think of the early years, which would have been right when I moved to San Francisco. That was just like trying to take every assignment that came my way to like make ends meet because I I still had student loans to pay off. i am just, but being also a single person without a family relying on you is also, that was an easier time to start to try to be a freelancer because I was terrified. I didn't want to be, I actually had always wanted to be a freelancer. And then how it ended up happening, I didn't actually consciously make that choice, or I didn't opt for it because I was laid off. (laughs) Mm. And my husband laughs at me because he says, that was the moment your professional life began. (laughs) He's like, that was the best thing that ever happened to you. And in retrospect, absolutely. But at the time, I just thought, holy shit, like, I have no money. Where am I going to get money from? And so I immediately was looking for other editorial jobs at other magazines because that was so scary to me but um it, i had this little sort of six month grace period where i was collecting unemployment and it was just like I, I had already paid up my rent for like six months and i was probably going to move and so i just kind of again i really credit my husband for saying you know just try it he knew me better than i knew myself mm-hmm. basically and you so know, you were
1: I, a single person but he was already in your life
2: he was already in my life but he was like a, a poor grad student in another country not, at the time. So he's like encouraging me from like across the pond. He was Go that a helpful do that uh, life.
1: financial force in no. your life. That.
2: And in fact, at that point in time, I had lent him money for his student loans, So <laughs> I was like doubly in the hole. <laughs> I'm actually really proud about that because, you know, my investment paid off. I think <laughs> that. He's he's a very yeah, solvent. He really could have gone horribly wrong. Um, but I really kind of just. I took lots and lots of assignments like the first couple years. And then, like, you, I don't know, you get these relationships and you start getting a rhythm. I mean, but there were, my income has varied wildly. Mm-hmm. You know, I think like from like $40,000 to like, you know, upwards of six figures. Like it's just depends. And I think because it's been happening so long and i because generally I'm a very frugal person, I think I just, and we as a family now are, we just, have managed our finances over time. It's like a long arc. it's like the long game we've played that it's worked out. but I don't know that I would be brave enough to do it today like if I were starting out now i just I see that there are many more opportunities to break in as a budding journalist or a starting out writer, but I also know in a very real terms that the fees you collect per piece are just you know in the toilet compared to <laughs> what it used to be
1: yeah. Do you feel the increased insecurity or do you feel like you've built up enough sort of capital, not f- literal capital, but capital in terms of editors and places over the years that you're you're somewhat insulated from that? I
2: think that um, I feel a little bit insulated from it because of that professional capital I think you're talking about, right? These relationships that are just, they are the bedrock of my writing existence and I feel really grateful. Um, but also that I've you know, I'm doing a bunch of books now and it feels like a little more solid. I like to have a back burner project, like a book project will take up say 75% of my time and then, and then the rest of the time to fill in. And I think that's worked fairly well over the last couple of years. Again, like it's, it does shift over year to year. Right now I feel like I'm in a good place, but it's because I have these, you know, two other book projects in the pipeline and and that's you know, on top of my other work.
1: I wanted to ask you a couple process questions about Mm -hmm. some specific stories, because I'm always fascinated by these, this type of story that I I really never do. Uh And part of the reason is, there's a fundamental thing I don't understand about it. It's just (laughs) going to sound ridiculous for a professional journalist to ask this question. But like, you've done a number of stories for California Sunday, for instance, Mm -hmm. where it's about something like people who are stranded after one of the wildfires, Mm. or maternity leave. Uh There's a really great piece about sort of maternity leave for all sorts of different people and how uh-huh. they how they deal with it. Uh-huh. And the question I always have is, how did you find all these people? <laughs> like, I know very well how to find a specific person right. that I'm looking for. Right. But if you said, write me something about maternity leave and find, I mean, I don't know how many people you started with. Wh- how are you finding these people? <laughs> because the ultimate subjects are incredible. Like, the little stories are amazing. Yeah. But how much work goes into locating them?
2: A lot. I mean, Cal Sunday does that kind of story really well and I think it's because everybody's casting a huge net and so you know even though maybe six people end up in a story it's because we've done interviews with like a hundred people and so it's a lot of work it's a lot a lot of work but I think it, the result the quality of the story that's told the intimacy with which those stories are treated It's because a lot of people end up on the cutting room floor. And I feel a tremendous amount of guilt about that because when you – so, for example, this story that I did about people after the fires, um, the wine country fires, and there were these people who lost their homes and were in limbo in various ways. So they were living in a hotel room or they were living with family or they were living in this, like, tiny apartment with a whole family in it or, like, a trailer – I talked to a lot of people at the moment of grief and Mm -hmm. like intense pain and just like instability about the future. And for that particular story, I had my in-laws are in Sonoma and they had been evacuated to our house in Berkeley and their street was on fire. Their house almost burned down. They were really lucky. But they knew a lot of people who had lost their homes. And so it was like, in that particular case, I had a very personal connection Mm -hmm. to a community of people who were suffering from this calamity. And so, but it was casting a wide, wide net, like asking friends and family. I mean, obviously social media is helpful in that. Like I have found lots of people who are willing to talk through Facebook and other writers who I know are in a particular region who might know someone, you know. That's how we find people. But in terms of are those people willing to talk to you, I just, again, like I, when they tell you, when they share something so intimate and intense with you, I feel responsibility to them. And so I try to, you know, not promise them that they're going to be in the story or that just keep it fairly open-ended, that we're collecting stories um, because I want them to not feel like you know, we only are interested in them for a story. And I guess that's just, that's a tricky thing with journalism, like on a basic level, right? It's just like when someone trusts you with their story, what are you going to do with it?
1: Yeah. And if you can't use it for reasons that are possibly Beyond a little bit control, outside of your control. Yeah. Then, well, especially because of what you said earlier, which is that you tend to, you do form relationships with right. your people that you write about. And mm-hmm. you feel like those relationships carry forward yeah. in many cases.
2: Yeah. And if you spend so much time with someone and someone tells you so many things about themselves, like that's not to say that I have ongoing relationships with all of these people who I've written about. Of course not. But I think that, as just a human being, you you feel tenderly and sensitively about some of these people, and I worry about sometimes about how they'll react or if they'll be upset if it doesn't end up being this, most people don't aren't like that, but some people do feel that you know maybe they've spent time that's lost or that they've wasted time or something like that. You know, so I just try to be as honest as possible and open with
1: them. Mm-hmm.
2: But yeah, I mean, there were that one story in Cal Sunday recently on childcare that we just talked to all these families, and
1: that's the one that really got me because yeah, I feel like for that, so the many worst people. kind of trend story is the kind where. An editor and reporter email their friends and say, "Who's got stories about yeah. this?" And it ends up yeah. it's all oriented around this circle of people. And you are can connected tell, it. It. of course, you can, you can read it and you know. Oh, yeah, of course, that's that's their friend of a friend who you know. And the one in Cal Sunday was obviously capturing people who were of all yeah. walks of life, was yeah. what made it interesting. Yeah. yeah. And that was what led me to the question of how do you find this?
2: <laughs> <laughs> it takes a village, not yeah. just me. Everyone else.
1: <laughs> and the other sort of very processy thing, because you do have done and do what could be variously categorized or generally categorized as travel writing. Mm, mm-hmm. And I'm curious what your view is of, you know, I'm, when you work for the Times, there's like nothing can be paid for mm-hmm. by anyone else. Mm-hmm. And is that your policy in all of your work, or you must be offered things?
2: Uh, you should see my inbox. Sometimes. Yeah. Like, want to go to Fiji. <laughs> yeah. I do want to go to Fiji, but I can't.
1: <laughs> never? No, you can't. You no. never. There's no like splitting of those. Like these are I, for the family.
2: <laughs> right. This is for you. This is for me. Um, that's a question that a lot of people ask. And mm-hmm. I, where I fall on it, this is just me because I don't do that much travel anymore. I used to do a lot more. I used to be, you know, like 80% travel stories. And now it's more like, I don't know. Maybe 15 to 20%. And and that's where I want to be. The the attractiveness of going on a big trip is less than it used to be because mm-hmm. when you have two little kids, turns out you can't just go to Fiji <laughs> like a hot second.
1: No, you're like, uh, take me to one of those places where they have like a the nanny. Oh, inclusive. All inclusive. Yeah. yeah,
2: exactly. I love Club men <laughs> Let's do this. Uh, but for me, again, because I, I do write so much for the times and i have for so long like i i don't know i can't really i don't think i can separate it um i think i think now there is a policy at the times where you maybe you can if you write for the travel section i don't know maybe if it's like a different kind of story for another publication i don't really know Hmm. ask your times there, folks
1: (laughs) 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 <laughs> cool, <good. laughs> I, I really
2: that. do get asked this a lot. Yeah,
1: I feel like that's... Anyone who does sort of travel writing, the fascinations are, do you get free trips? Yeah. And also, is it actually fun? I yeah. feel like that's a thing that people are always wondering. Like, yeah. does it feel like work or does it feel like fun?
2: It, I don't, it's a lot of work. You got to <laughs> go to the place. Obviously, the place is usually one that you want to go to. But you have to be paying attention. I mean, you're doing... <laughs> this is funny because I just was talking to my time travel editor and it's... I think you have to just... Continue to think that the writing, it's the writing first and the travel second. Mm-hmm. Even though sound, being a travel writer sounds awesome, in theory, it's the same thing. It's the same job. But I also feel like um, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because you, so I started doing travel writing or travel journalism. And I think that it kind of hurt me in that people didn't take me as seriously as a writer maybe that's just my sense but i think that people would use the term travel writer as a in a pejorative sense
1: like it's not journalism it's
2: yeah. something else and i've definitely gotten that sense over the years um, and i love to travel and i love to write about people and places when i'm traveling but i so i have i think i've fought that perception for the first like part of my career when I kind of wanted to be taken more seriously and write bigger stories and write about things that were not travel related.
1: And you, after saying you're not the person who, when they ask how's, what's your next book? You don't have your next book. You do have your <laughs> next book. I saw that you have a new book I do, I do. already. Your book's not out. That's not fair for you to suddenly become that person.
2: It, But I didn't plan it. It happened. It fell in my lap. Well, one of them did. The children's book, which I'm
1: okay. So, yeah, yeah. But, uh, I want to hear about the children's book first. Okay. Because I only know of one other journalist who is also writing a children's book or has written a children's book. And I'm, I don't know if this is like a trend <laughs> to, to make a trend. I don't know, trend. two data
2: points. We'll see. We'll see. I, so this was a cover story I did for California Sunday. And it was about the women, the big wave women surfers going into Mavericks. Cause Mavericks, for you listeners who don't follow big wave surfing, cause it, it is a niche sport, I would say. Um, it's a surf break south of San Francisco that just, it only breaks in certain conditions when the swell's huge. And I mean, waves that can go 50, 60 feet. And uh, this contest that had always been held there customarily had omitted women participants and um that was a real problem (laughs) and uh a lot of the big wave women surfers were agitating for you know inclusion in that competition and then also just more equity in the sport and pay equity across the professional like competition circuit for surfing in general and that happily has happened and actually happened after the story and i like to think that it had some role in you know amplifying the this issue like anyway so this, this well that's something
1: you also have covered more recently in sports illustrated right related to maternity yes and yeah running and equal pay and yeah. how people are treated and yeah. that feels like a theme that you like to write about
2: yeah. And I feel really excited that that's part of my beat. <laughs> you know, I don't know if it's a beat, but it's just like an issue and a theme that I have been writing about in recent years. And I just feel like there's a lot happening. But anyway, so this cover story for Cal Sunday, um, this children's book editor saw it in, in New York, and Henry Holtz. And she, out of the blue, wrote to me and said, I saw this great story you've done. On women, big wave women surfers, have you ever thought about writing a children's book? And I said, Yes, yes, I have. I will certainly try that for you.
1: Every creative person <laughs> who has a child has thought about oh writing a children's gosh, book. Oh my gosh,
2: yes. And uh like again, I can't take credit for this one because it was some editor saw the potential for this. And you know what? Took her everlasting credit I think she didn't say that's a great idea for a children's book now other children's book author will you write a book about this yeah like, you she reached out to me go. yeah and I just thought that is amazing and thank you so much it is the honor of my life that you asked me and I will write this book and then they bought it
1: is it non-fictionish like is it based on some of the people in the story
2: yes it is a story about one of the big wave women surfers and it's the first woman to surf Mavericks and it's the day she meets her first big wave. <laughs> so that's what it, it's called, Sarah and the Big Wave.
1: Are your, I know you drew a lot with your dad when you were growing <laughs> up. Are your artist skills? Did, did you oh my God, no. crack at illustrating no it? No way.
2: Wait, so this is, a, in my limited um, children's book world ex, um, experience, in my brief tenure here, I understand that how it works is that publishers rarely have a writer illustrate the book. Mm-hmm. And you would think that that's like a, Happens a lot, or that the writer has a relationship with the illustrator and they often come up with books together. No, it's so funny. They'll have a story and then they will independently, the publisher, this is sort of how it works usually, that they pair you with an illustrator after the fact. It's like a very independent channel. Stay in your lane. Mm. We will orchestrate this thing. Yeah, it's just fascinating so you just, to me. Have
1: you been doing? You send your pages. Yeah, and then I they come back. Yeah,
2: and now um, the illustrator is Sophie Diao. I'm so excited. She's just a beautiful artist, and she's making the art now. Like, just that's is what's happening. It's like I don't, I don't even have to do anything. I just sit and talk to you about it. <laughs> it's great. I love it. Also, children's books are super short.
1: Yeah, I guess. But yeah. you have to. Every word has to. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing more frustrating as a parent than reading a children's book in which there's just like, just fluff in there. Yeah, like yes, it's gotta be tight.
2: Every word was super tight. I just weighed every word <laughs> I put it down. But it was, it was such a joy to do it. I love doing it. I would do, Henry Holt, are you listening? I would do 10 more children's books for you. <laughs>
1: this is your direct appeal to yeah, my direct appeal. become a permanent children's <laughs> book author. Um, but before we go, I do want to ask you about, I know the third book is like a new thing. Yeah. But I read that essay that you wrote in the Times. And I was very intrigued by it because, well, describe what it is first.
2: Okay. So this essay I wrote in the Times was about something that I call fallow time. And it's really, it was about integrating this period of like active rest, what I call active rest into your work life. I will also confess that it was like a little bit to justify how on a normal work day I'll be lying on my couch reading a magazine <laughs> and feel like, is it okay that I'm doing this? <laughs> is it okay that I'm reading a book? Is it okay that I'm taking a walk and just thinking about something and I don't look like I'm working? Like I really, it was very self-interested. But I thought about this essay for months because I wanted to, I knew from a, an instinctive part of me that, I know when I like, I can't just sit at a desk and like pound out, you know, words and words and words and words and not hit bottom or not hit empty at some point and need to replenish whatever it is that helps me to produce those words. I think we all know that on a very basic level. But I wanted to get a little bit more granular about the creative process and how that looks for different people. And I knew what it looked like for me. um, And I kind of started asking people about what does look like to them and how it feels and how in response to this hustle culture we have of, you know, producing, 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 and then also showing and broadcasting that you're producing. And that's like part of it. And it's this like vicious cycle that makes us all paralyzed actually. How can we kind of rethink that and reframe our thinking about it so that we feel that we are allowed to have that time to, do whatever it is that we need to do to make ourselves excited to do the work that we know why, why we chose our work in the first place. Um, and then the essay blew up and then now I'm writing a book.
1: I, (laughs) I I could see, I could see why it blew up. And it also, I feel like it touched a particular nerve for me because from the times that I freelance, which is most of my career, there's always this struggle between, you know, not getting any work done and then feeling like, there's a way in which you can sort of say, well, that's just part of my process. I have to, I have to, you know, really think through these things in an idle way before I yeah. can actually sit down and do blah, blah, blah. And then this sort of tremendous guilt of thinking, yeah, like, exactly. I am in the incredibly privileged position to just like type on a laptop, you know, for money. <laughs> right. And so I'm just wasting it. And I feel like without enough guilt, mm-hmm. it's hard to push yourself to get things done done yeah the guilt yeah. helps you get them done it's true but then also prevents you sometimes from enjoying what is incredible right. about right. making that kind of yeah. lifestyle work like that yeah that tension is
2: it's really hard to navigate and depending on your personality like how you conduct your day it can be totally paralyzing um and you are good at what you do but you can't make yourself do it i think there's like this loop in many freelancers heads about this. Like, how do I, I'm lucky enough to not be tethered to some desk somewhere or a place and I can do my work anywhere and yet I feel like I can't do it. So it, I think part of it is that to give yourself a little bit of, cut yourself a little bit of slack, but also to like build into your daily life. Like, I actually sometimes in my calendar, I'll say, you know, like I have a whole Bunch of things I need to do in a particular day that are very again explicitly work related. Like I got to call this person, and write this, work on this, and then I will have like a, an hour window where I'm like, that's the time where I'm going to be. I'm going to be sitting on that couch, <laughs> reading that magazine. So it's where
1: you you schedule that in.
2: I see those when, I see those blank spaces, and I want those blank spaces. And when I don't have the blank spaces, is when I start getting really
1: anxious. So, how much is your creative life? You don't have to answer this if you don't want to. Like the your dad's life that you talked about when you were a kid in the studio and he was the fun dad. And uh-huh. How much are you that person now versus not that person?
2: That is a great question. Um, I don't think my kids think that they can come out at 4 a.m. and find me watching a movie <laughs> because I am sleeping. I am tired. But I do think – I mean it really is – it really is such a joy that my kids know what I do. That they're like, "Oh, look! There's the New York Times, Mama. Are you in it? <laughs> Where's that story you wrote about me? <laughs> is it in there? You know, it's my Teddy, my Teddy voice, my <laughs> seven-year-old, um, and that they're proud of me and that they understand because they love reading and they love books and. That you know, one of my kids is just like, why does it take so long to write a book? Why is it like two years to write Why We Swim? And then when it actually was a real thing that you know, this galley that I can hand them, they just were like, you know, they got pretty excited. And that's like, all right, something's going right. Like I think that they understand what I do in a joyous way, and they understand that's part of me in a way that my husband, who is uh, environmental, well, he's been environmental consultant for a long time, and when you ask them what he does, one of the greatest answers in the past years has been um, meetings. <laughs> and that's just brutal. Like, Why don't they say he
1: saves the planet?
2: Now they do. They've been coached. <laughs> because the meetings thing was just like heart stabbing and Matt's like this cannot stand. This cannot be the message I <laughs> put in the world. So we've, we've uh, altered that answer. Um, but yeah, like I just, I really appreciate that my children, being as young as they are, understand that this work that I do is is part of me. And they are too. And they're part of it too. So that's really gratifying.
1: Well, thank you for coming on the podcast, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. All right. That's it for this week's long form podcast. I am Evan Ratliff, your co-host. Thanks to Bonnie for coming in way back in December, and go check out her book, Why We Swim. It's out now. Uh, as I said at the top, it's a great book to read right now. You can really get lost in it, and it's really, really beautifully written. Thanks to my co-hosts Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks to our editor Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern Marina Clementi, and thanks to our sponsors Mailchimp and Pit Writers. Stay safe, everybody, and we'll see you next week.
0: Why do you run? Why does anyone?